Hey, Neil. Hey, Sandra. Neil, what do you see when you look into Putin's eyes? Well, our friend George Bush said he looked into his eyes and saw a good Christian soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think John McCain nailed this one. He said, I looked into Mr. Putin's eyes and I saw three things. A K and a G and a B. <laughs> That's a pretty good quote, yeah. <laughs> Since we recorded this episode, two relevant things have happened. First, Anatoly Chubais, a longtime Putin advisor, resigned and fled Russia for Turkey. Mikhail Khodorovsky, a former oil company oligarch imprisoned for a decade by Putin, also said on CNN that Putin will be gone in three years. This could be a confirmation of his specific knowledge about Putin's health, which we're covering in this episode. So we figured we should include those at the beginning. Enjoy. In this episode, we are going to talk about Putin's health. And there are a bunch of rumors that can't be verified. But there are also things that originated with people who do have access to good intelligence. So we're going to be talking about that. And also we're going to be talking about what's going to happen if and well, when he dies, because he's not going to live forever. Now, ever since he came to power in the 2000s, Putin's propaganda machine constructed and disseminated a very carefully cut out image, uh, that of a tough, healthy guy. Putin is a judo black belt and he has shot tigers and allegedly eats raw eggs for breakfast. But Vladimir Putin's <laughs> <laughs> his strongman image has been under scrutiny recently again. And reports that he's suffering from a serious health problem continue to circulate. I just want to say something about shooting tigers. I do not think that is manly. I think that is cowardly. And honestly, hunting is not a sport. Sport is supposed to be fair play. And if the animal doesn't have a gun too, you're not a sportsman. You're a coward. Ricky Gervais said that. <laughs> Years ago, a small tangent, years ago, there's a video on the internet of this uh, this Indian farmer who had a tiger in his, in his field. I forget what he was growing. But anyways, so he's got a small elephant and he's riding the elephant and he's got a stick and they're going to go, I'm going to get this tiger out of my field today. I'm tired of this tiger messing with my livestock. So he gets on the small elephant and they go wading off into these tall plants of whatever he's growing. And right away, the elephant is like, screw this. I'm out. This is a bad idea. <laughs> the elephant turns around and runs away just as the tiger leaps out of the bushes and swipes at the farmer and he swings with the stick. That was also a bad choice because the tiger is probably still in that field, but that farmer's got two less fingers than he had the day before he rode that small elephant out to get rid of the tiger. So the lesson is leave the tiger alone. Yes, I completely agree. Talking about animals, Putin loves riding horses and he loves doing so topless. And he also likes fishing and sunbathing in the wilderness, also topless. So everybody knows that already. We've all seen the memes. Now, rumors of his alleged illness have been floating around since September 2012, maybe even earlier. It all started, it seems, when Putin was observed having a visible limp during an economic cooperation forum in Vladivostok back then. And then the Kremlin 
As usual, immediately dismissed the questions about his health. Dmitry Peskov, Putin's press secretary, said, Any sportsman has a lot of injuries, especially if he plays sports actively and every day like Putin. Now, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. This was a reference to another crazy thing Putin did to prove what a maverick he is. He went to Siberia earlier that year, so in 2012 or the end of 2011, I think, and in a motorized hang glider, he led a flock of rare cranes on the first leg of their migration. <laughs> first of all, there's a lot of problems with this. Number one, if you strap yourself in one of those lawnmower-powered gliders, you're braver than me. I mean, I've flown some sketchy things in my time, flying things, and I have never thought it was a good idea to get on a glider with a lawnmower motor attached to it and say, yeah, let's just fly off the side of a mountain with this. That ain't me. I'm going to watch you do it. No, same here. Second of all, did he miss the part where literally the most common thing that will knock an airplane out of the sky is running to a flock of birds? So you're going to go fly with a flock of birds on purpose. Did you never stop to think, what are the birds going to think about my lawnmower-powered kite? On the bright side, not that I'm defending him or anything. At least he pretends to be interested in preserving, you know, nature and wildlife and stuff like that. But I think that was just a PR stunt, let's be honest. That's what that was. Peskov denied that Putin's sky acrobatics with endangered birds had caused the president any harm. But he admitted that Putin, who was 60 at the time, had pulled a muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I know the context is really sad with Ukraine and everything, but you cannot not laugh at this stuff. Now, as we said, Putin is 69 years old and he was born in October 52. So he's a few months shy of his 70th birthday, not a chicken spring anymore. That's why his health is also coming into discussion recently, that and many other reasons. His physical strength has long been a trademark of his presidency, which followed that of Boris Yeltsin, whose obvious physical decline and alcoholism while in office on TV was a source of embarrassment for many Russians. It's important to understand that the Russian people have a very macho culture. So the focus on these kinds of things like topless riding, film judo sessions, also topless sometimes, broadcast on TV, were and are key to Putin's strategy of consolidating and staying in power. It's a spring chicken, not a chicken spring. <laughs> a chicken spring is going to be like lots of chickens like flying out of the ground. <laughs> yes. About that, so our listeners should know, maybe the ones who didn't listen to our previous episodes, I'm originally from Romania. So in, in um, Romance language, we have a Latin language, Romanian. We don't speak Russians, by the way. That's another misconception. You don't have a beautiful life or spring chicken. You have chicken spring. So the, <laughs> the so the adjectives go after the noun. So that's why my brain sometimes, well, yes, misfires. I mean, look, first of all, I give you credit. Chicken you are, spring. You are hashtag, doing a... Neil, hashtag chicken spring. That's going to be that's gonna <laughs> Yes, be we're going to save We're going to save the chicken spring. I mean, I don't know anybody else that could do a podcast in their second language, so I give you all the credit in the world, even if I have to edit this stuff. And maybe, now that I think about it, maybe this is like the source of all this random mistrust between East and West. Maybe like 800 years ago, some, you know, some court diplomat looked and said, 
these crazy Russians have got chicken springs. <laughs> What's wrong with these people? Don't talk to them. <laughs> oh, you you should know there are so many things that can be misinterpreted. Uh, obviously, for the most part, 99% of, you know, the language, customs, and even with the different grammar, things get easily conveyed, you know, if you speak a foreign language. But sometimes, yes, there are phrases and things that if you translate them, they come across as completely insane. Like, for example, in Romanian, when we say we want to look at something really fast, check it out, the expression is translated at literam is throw an eye. I'm going to throw an eye at, I don't know, at the news today or something. So it's really... <laughs> that is totally something somebody in Louisiana would say. They're going to take over that phrase. Watch. So. Yeah. It's like we have... And that's also valid for other languages. Like yeah. any language, if you translate it at literam, the expressions are, are going to sound completely like they don't, funny and crazy. The people in Louisiana, they don't go visit somebody. They make a pass. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. You could see <laughs> that how that would like be... You could obviously see how that would be interpreted wrong. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, back to Putin. In 2012, there was a report from Reuters saying that Putin also underwent back surgery. That report was obviously dismissed again by the Kremlin. Now, it's important to point out that during the Soviet Union, there was a tacit ban on public discussions of the well-being of politicians. People were banned from mentioning even even a hint that politicians could be ill, sick, or dying, especially those very high up. Officials around the dying Leonid Brezhnev, uh, who was literally with one foot in the grave, that's another Romanian expression. So the politicians and the people around Brezhnev in the 1980s repeatedly denied that the long service leader was seriously ill when in actuality he was really close to death, right? But officially his health was perfect. Now, this image of Putin being eternally young and strong like a bear is what the Kremlin has been working on for years. That's their propaganda machine and that's what they've been conveying. Which, by the way, reminds me of the bear he stole. He photoshopped from the Museum of Natural <laughs> History, the one we mentioned in yeah. our uh, Ukraine episodes. Yeah, it's quite funny. And in 2015, people started to notice that Putin's right arm is completely rigid when he walks, while his left one moves normally. Now, of course, a bunch of people started saying their opinions, and neurology professor Bastian Bloom of the Redbound University Medical Center in the Netherlands and his colleagues analyzed lots of images of Putin from different events since then and published a report in the British Medical Journal. Here's an excerpt. We were struck to find several consecutive YouTube recordings of Russia's President Vladimir Putin manifesting a clearly reduced right-sided arm swing. Searching for possible explanations, we encounter a training manual of the former Russian KGB. According to this manual, KGB operatives were instructed to keep their weapon in the right hand close to their chest and to move forward with one side, usually the left, presumably allowing subjects to draw the gun as quickly as possible when confronted with the foe. We propose that this new gate pattern, which we term gunslinger's gate, may result from a behavioral adaptation, possibly triggered by KGB or other forms of weapons training, where trainees are taught to keep their right hand close to the chest while walking, allowing them to quickly draw a gun when faced with a foe. That was their conclusion. I call BS. I'm yes. going to explain why. <laughs> it's, not, 
<laughs> I mean, I think those doctors need to stick to the medical manuals and leave the KGB manual out of it. <laughs> That's exactly my point. So this professor and his colleagues are not only wrong, they are embarrassingly wrong. Everyone knows that, yes, Putin was his KGB, now it's called FSB. But first of all, neurology professors don't study KGB manuals. Secondly, Putin's bodyguards, who are also KGB, FSB, and are walking beside him in many of those videos, don't have a stiff, rigid left arm or right arm or any limb yeah. that's rigid. So this argument is ludicrous and it is most likely Kremlin propaganda through proxies to hide the truth, which, according to many other sources and chatter online, refers to the probability or possibility that Putin might have had a stroke and his left side has been affected. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think there's... I don't know. Maybe there is a grand Russian conspiracy to put stuff in medical journals, but... Uh, oh, no, they... They do. I mean, there is a history of spreading disinformation, not only within Russian borders, but also abroad and through people who would look trustworthy or would seem trustworthy. That that report. I mean, though, it those... could be. Yeah, it's, it's part of the tough guy thing. But and we're going to do an episode about Putin's initial professional career in the KGB. It's going to be our next premium episode, uh, along with the stuff he did when he was newly in office after Yeltsin, you know, like the uh, apartment bombings and the theater gassing and stuff like that. But short answer is our boy Putin, uh, <laughs> he was in the KGB, but... He was in East Germany in a very, you know, in a friendly allied place. Uh, it's not like he was this secretive undercover guy early in his KGB time. Uh, he was about as office guy as you could get. And don't get me wrong, he was good at office guy. You know, he got himself on a lot of committees and a lot of boards and then a lot of emails. Well, not emails, letters at the time, but you get the idea. And uh, yeah, Putin was uh, not walking around with a gun every day, I assure you. Yes, and he was definitely not a James Bond. He no. was not, no. no. While he was in East Germany, definitely not. And I'm not saying he probably knows how to use a gun, most likely. I mean, there's no way he doesn't, but he's not... Zero, zero, 007. So his uh, stiff, rigid arm has nothing to do with his KGB training. And when East Germany fell apart, all of these Stasi records, they were just laying there. We know so much stuff about how the Eastern Bloc countries operated that we would not have known uh, if not for all these Stasi records. Really, Putin's learning period as a young professional wasn't even in Russia. It was all in Dresden. So it's going to be good stuff. I want to bring up again the uh, bit that uh, we discussed about in the intro in a more funny way, but here I want to look at it a bit more seriously. It's that bit where George Bush said, I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to get a sense of his soul. Yeah, yeah, he seems fine. He's fine. Yeah, I think. Yeah, we're busy with this other thing. We'll check back with you later. And that was probably the extent of it. If anything, George Bush's comments were probably meant to deflect because he didn't have time to deal with it. He had completely obsessed his whole administration with Afghanistan and Iraq. So there was not going to be a diversion to go do something with Russians. Yeah, I think the one who got it right was John McCain. Because he's acting in what he perceives as his country's national interest, no matter how close and the friendship is between himself 
and President Bush. I looked into Putin's eyes, I saw three letters, a K, a G, and a B. Now back to the Rusty Farm. Did you see that deep fake video of Putin in a meeting surrounded by people and his hand magically goes through the microphone as he gesticulates? <laughs> See, this is like what we mentioned in the last episode with him stealing the bear picture. I want to know who the guy is that works on this stuff for him. They get it. It doesn't matter that you are putting something out there like that, that that clearly is going to get everybody talking about it. That's the point, is everybody's going to talk about it. So put it out there anyway. Who cares? Yeah, no, no. The name, uh, the name of the guy that is doing all this stuff for him is Dmitry Peskov, who is his press secretary at this time. And he has been with Putin for a long time. He He's kind of like the mastermind behind the whole propaganda strategy. Yeah, uh, hire that guy. Like, seriously, I mean... Putin's going to fall apart any day now, but whoever in uh, Western PR companies is uh, looking to uh, go mull around in Moscow, hire that guy, because that guy, he gets it. It doesn't matter that your arm goes through the microphone. What do you get? It's like, ooh, they caught him. It's like, of course they caught him. Everybody knows this well, is fake. That's the point, is you're all talking about it. So That's know. the thing, that in Russia it's working, because the Russian people have been so insulated and so manipulated that that thing doesn't even go through and normally they don't make mistakes that big but that video was put out there by the kremlin a few weeks ago and i think they had to rush to get it done and that's why that mistake was overlooked and the reason why they put that video online was to dissipate rumors that putin is staying very far from people he's secluded he's very afraid of covid or of being assassinated or poisoned all these all this chatter that's going on online. So they wanted to kind of like distract people from that to like, oh, look, Putin is surrounded by people. He's organizing meetings with his staff. He's not afraid of COVID. Look at him. Look at him being social. I don't know. I'm, I'm holding out hope that the PR guy did it on purpose and just isn't telling anybody. Like I've seen political documentaries where the guy who edited the documentary clearly does not like the political candidate or whatever featured in it and he edits it in such a way that it makes him look bad and so what could i say i have a uh, a literature grad's brain so i can't do anything but read between the lines and when i see stuff like that i'm thinking to myself yeah the editor is uh, is on our side so yes <laughs> I actually think you make a good point because that was not something that's not noticeable. As soon as you look at that video, you see it's a fake. So probably, yes, probably the people around him are already trying to get rid of him in smaller ways, however they can. But yeah, it might have been a, a subversion tactic. Now, um, I wanted to say that President Zelensky of Ukraine trolled Putin immediately after that video was released. While having a press conference, Zelensky actually moved the microphone with his hand to prove that he's really in Kyiv with the journalists, not afraid, and like that's really him. And that troll level is presidential. I love Zelensky. <laughs> <laughs> More recent talk makes reference to Putin's puffy face. The appearance of his face changed. And the word out there is that this was caused by steroids Again, so these are just rumors at this point, but sometimes I think there is no smoke without fire. Now, in an interview in March this year, former Foreign Secretary Lord David Owen of the UK said, 
that he suspects, and I quote, steroid use due to changes in the shape of Putin's face, which could be caused by muscle-boosting drugs. So it could be because he wants to be strong and look like he's very fit and he's taking steroids. It could also be that he has other illnesses because steroids are used for a variety, a variety of diseases and illnesses. And he's a thin guy. He's not, uh, he's never been... Chubby. Yeah, yeah, he's never been a puffy, chubby guy. So he's always been a thin guy. And if suddenly in your late 60s, your face gets swollen, yeah, there's some reason, there's a medical reason for that. It's not a passage of time thing just because it doesn't fit him. He's a thin guy. Yeah, it's the the physiognomy of his face is almost changed. I would say it's just like it doesn't look like an oval anymore. He's almost round, squarish. Like, yeah, he's really puffy. Anyway, there is intelligence that was likely leaked on purpose because the UK official we just talked about has access to that kind of intelligence. So all these things that people who are in positions in which they would know more than we do. All these things they say, I don't think they come from nowhere. I don't think they would come out these people and say completely baseless things. Particularly the stiff arm, and that's been for years now. That's not recent. The Mm -hmm. the stiff arm tells me that this guy's probably had a stroke or had some sort of other neurological condition like Parkinson's or ALS or something like that. So... There's something there. He's gotten worse recently, but it's been something for a while, I think. It's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's I think this is up. also yeah. why that over time they have transitioned these PR stunts that he does from, you know, years ago it was him out in the woods with, you know, no shirt on the horse and all this stuff. But <laughs> over time we get into more like these office photos and sitting at the long table and, you know, these these fakes that are obviously fake that are maybe fake on purpose and maybe just designed to get people to talk about them. I mean, all that stuff is just not the strong man with the bear. And even the bear is, uh, is pre-chosen. So I think over time they're getting less and less realistic. So... Uh, that's more evidence, I think, that he's had something like a stroke or ALS or Parkinson's and it's deteriorating, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can uh, dismiss the words and the rumors, but then the videos of him in which his arm is clearly extremely stiff compared to his other arm, there is no debating that. I mean, a video is a video, we've all seen it, and it's not only one, it's almost all his TV appearances in the last decade or so. Now, on March 18, 2022, so a few days ago, during the Ukraine invasion, wearing an Italian designer coat, modestly priced at over 10,000 British pounds, and a white rolled neck neck sweater costing about 3,000 pounds, Putin tried to rally Russians in support of the war in Ukraine. The whole gathering was obviously staged, carefully organized by the propaganda bureau in the Kremlin. Again, Putin was seen limping as he walked off the stage. And even more weirdly, the feed was cut mid-sentence as Putin was giving his speech, and then resumed immediately with an image of people singing on the stage. This was supposedly a live transmission we can't know for sure. And rumors are that he either fell or was about to faint and did a sign or something so that the producer would cut the feed or the TV station was hacked. These both, both of these rumors are circulating online. Either way, 
something is going on and the limping is there and it's not debatable either because it's not the first time he's he's been noticed to be limping people in the audience by the way at this rally told the bbc that they worked in the public sector and they were obliged to attend basically and one lady said that i'll be there for a while and then i leave i i'm not here i don't i'm not here to support the war i don't yeah so but they are made to go this is what happens in um uh, totalitarian regimes you have to go otherwise you're going to lose your job that's that's what it boils down to you want me to ruin uh the uh no, ruin the romance a little bit so there was a there was a republican candidate for president a few years ago and it came out in the news that coal miners were required by their boss clearly illegal but they did it anyway required by their <laughs> boss to go attend this Republican candidate speech. And if they didn't go, they got... Here in America? Yes. In I mean, yeah. in a, if they did not go, they would not be paid for the day. But if they did go, they would get uh, paid as if they had gone to work that day. That's exactly what they did at this rally, because I read an article about it. They're paid... There were two it's, such it's... stories, actually. Two. Wait, another one comes to mind. It also came out that... Jerry Falwell's university uh, required its students to attend a Ted Cruz speech or pay a fine for not attending. Are you serious? I'm serious. <laughs> that's, that's not only illegal. What is wrong with these people? How is that possible in the United States? Why? I mean, I'm happy it's in the news and I'm happy people know about it, but they don't seem, a lot of people don't seem to change their minds and notice the, the red flags. Well, now, I mean, if your parents are sending you to Liberty University, you're starting out with two strikes in life. So I hope you, uh, <laughs> I hope you do better. And, uh, but in the meantime, you could be seeing some of Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, what was one of the most, uh, haunting and really upsetting, uh, images from that rally that Putin did? The people there were made, were obliged to wave Russian flags and banners with the Z symbol. You know, the horrible Z symbols that has been painted on all the Russian vehicles that have invaded Ukraine and all and on all their aircraft and stuff like that. It's horrible. And the events host even wore ribbons folded in the in the Z shape in their lapels. This is <laughs> so the Z, the only other organization that I can think of is the Zeta drug cartel in Mexico. And they, you, I mean, okay. You know, there's lots of people in this world that one can emulate. The Zeta drug cartel is not who you want to be like. So. Well, but in, in actuality, let's face it, everybody in the top tiers of the Kremlin, everybody in power there, they are mobsters. That's what Putin's regime is. That's who's at the top. There are cronies and mobsters and people doing illegal things. We're talking murder. We're talking genocide. We're talking war crimes. So that's his crowd. Those are his people. I don't know. Maybe and they're the friends with the Zeta cartel. That's the same thing the Zeta cartel does. I wouldn't be surprised at this point. But this Z thing, by the way, is very ominous. And it's also reminiscent of the Nazi swastika and what Putin is doing ironically calling the invasion a denazification of Ukraine and the nerve he has by bombing the Holocaust memorial in Kiev at Babinyar and then calling Zelensky a Nazi when Zelensky is actually Jewish. This is the definition of insanity. It's turning the truth into lies and black into white and everything upside down. And that's what he does with his disinformation propaganda machine.
Yeah, the Russian people, I think, are every bit as obsessed with World War II still as we are. They were the ones that had to withstand the most concentrated Nazi uh, assault for the longest period of time and then turn around and go back and made it to Berlin first. So I'm not surprised that they use such a thing to kind of drum up support amongst their own people because the uh, the Russian people are never going to forget their victory in World War II any more than we are, but yeah. Yeah, and as we said in the previous two episodes, the West underestimated Ukraine's bravery, and now it looks like we are underestimating Putin's brutality as well. I wonder when, if ever, NATO will interfere, because at the end of the day, what Russia is doing now must be stopped, but we also don't want to cause World War III. On the other hand, the news coming out of Mariupol is horrific. Uh, Mariupol residents are forcibly being deported into filtration camps inside Russia. This is very reminiscent of Soviet gulags, and we are in 2022 and we are watching the 1940s live on TV pretty much. It's what's happening right now, and my question would be when enough is enough? I don't know, it's a very delicate situation again, but I'm just worried that Putin is escalating because his army is stuck on the ground and not doing so great, he's escalating the cruelty. Yeah, I mean, this is what they've always done, and for example, what they did in Afghanistan in the 80s, I mean... That was their plan for how to pacify Afghanistan was they just go blow up villages uh, and, you know, shoot at, you know, women and children walking around, you know, doing their daily chores or whatever. That was what they did then. And yeah, the rumor is they're running low on cruise missiles and running low on smart bombs. And so that would explain why they're doubling up on civilian targets as kind of a strongman PR thing because they think they can make them quit. And at this point, I think that day has long since passed. So I don't think it's going to work. But yeah, that's the rationale, I'm guessing, is if we bomb cities, then they'll just quit. Yes, I think the bombing of the maternities and targeting pregnant women and children and all the things we talked before and now putting people in basically camps... This is just to crush their soul and to make them quit because I think Putin realizes otherwise they will not give up. They just won't. And I don't think they will no matter what Putin does. And I really hope they're successful. But back to the story and what we were discussing about the Z symbol. Like Zelensky said, every year politicians repeat never again. And he was addressing the German MPs referring to the annual Holocaust uh, commemorations. Then he continued and said, now we see that these words simply mean nothing. People are being destroyed in Europe, he said. And then Zelensky called on Germany, NATO and the US to help destroy this new wall Russia was erecting in Europe. It's not a Berlin wall, he said. It is a wall in Central Europe between freedom and bondage. And this wall is growing bigger with every bomb. And it's it's true. It's true. So I don't know how more clearer... Uh, He could have been in asking for their help yet again, and we are giving help. But I do think right now we have to keep an eye on the escalation of Putin's cruelty in Ukraine and see how we can act accordingly and help them faster and better. I think we're going to know sooner rather than later who's right about what they're running out of and what they're willing to commit. There have been some more numbers as far as 
like how many missions the Russians fly a day with their air force and, and how well the Ukrainians are doing against them. So in any case, no matter what happens, it's going to be soon. It's not, this is not going to be something I don't think that draws out for six months or a year. Um, it's just not. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure about that because we already said that uh, it is entirely possible also that Ukraine turns into Putin's Afghanistan. Anyway, back to the discussion about Putin's health. So far, the things we talked about could just be not entirely true or not entirely based in reality besides the limp and the rigid arm. But what really matters is the intelligence. And now I'm going to talk again about Marco Rubio, the Republican senator who's on the intelligence committee and whom we criticized in our second episode about the Ukraine invasion because he endangered Zelensky by posting things on Twitter he shouldn't have. But again, recently he made some comments in the press saying, something's off with Putin. I wish I could share more, but for now I can say it's pretty obvious to many that something is off with him. He has always been a killer, but his problem now is different and significant. Putin appears to have some neurophysiological health issues. I don't think this is something we should overlook because these reports come from other sources as well. A former White House national security official told the Telegraph that the U.S. should make it personal and release the intelligence it has on Putin's health. So again, no smoke without fire. And the French also have suspicions. Following Macron's marathon meeting with Putin before the invasion, one of the French officials noticed that uh, Putin was not the same. He was more rigid and ideological and had, in some respects, gone haywire. Now, fact is that Putin also had periods of time when he was completely off the grid, away from public eye, and he canceled meetings, all kinds of events and so on. So that is a bit weird, too. But on the other hand, we could argue that, well, he has a personal life, so maybe he was busy doing other things. In November 2020, Professor Valery Solovey now a former historian at the prestigious Moscow State Institute of International Relations, was quoted as suggesting Mr. Putin may have Parkinson's disease and cancer. The red flags have been raised. So we know now that even last year and two years ago, his health was not looking good. And people in high levels in the Russian society heard about it, knew about it. Now, later on, Solovey resigned from the institute where he was head of the PR department. And in 2019, he said that political pressure was responsible for his departure. He was later, guess what, arrested, <laughs> along with his son at an opposition protest in Moscow. A video posted online uh, showed several policemen in body armor and uh, blackface masks grabbing Solovey and escorted him to a police car in the square in central Moscow. So... I tend to believe him because he's been imprisoned for saying these things, basically, and for protesting against the regime. Yeah, if you said something bad enough that they come snatch you off the street uh, with their ski masks on, then, uh, well... It's probably true. <laughs> it may be true. <laughs> so let's do a small recap. So far we have a potential unconfirmed stroke, which could explain neuro the neurological and physiological issues Rubio was mentioning, the rigid arm, uh, also potentially a possible consequence of a cerebrovascular event, 
the steroids and corticosteroids the former UK foreign secretary talked about. And by the way, uh, steroids cause aggression and they also cause puffy face. Uh, back surgery, not confirmed. Limping, confirmed because we can see it with our own eyes in the videos and reports of Parkinson and cancer. Also canceling meetings and disappearing from the public eye and the inexplicable fear of COVID for a man in allegedly impeccable shape and fully vaccinated and boosted probably two times, if not more. That is something I'm not taking the COVID thing lightly. I have my booster vaccine and I'm going to schedule myself for a second booster. But for somebody who says they're in perfect health and who for somebody who claims they are working out every day and riding horses and herding, uh, not herding, cranes, you know, leading cranes in their migration phases and stuff like that. I feel that his exacerbated fear of getting COVID and being uh, using those humongous long tables, something doesn't add up. It is extremely fishy, right? Yeah. I've had two friends die of uh, these flu outbreaks over the recent years. One recently that yeah, she Yeah, sorry had, to hear that. She had a treatable cancer and she was three chemo treatments away from getting an all clear she hoped and she got covid and if i mean if you get two things at the same time you're in trouble and that's what uh was she died because she was just too weak to recover from covid and another friend of mine from high school years ago caught one of the swine flus that uh was one of the outbreaks in the early 2000s now, and this is a healthy guy in his mid-30s and at the time and he uh so he caught the swine flu, and then he got pneumonia from something else. And like I said, you get two infections, you get two different infections at the same time, you're in trouble. I don't care how young and healthy you are. So, and in Putin's case, coming up on 70, um, really not going to be well off if he's, you know, catches something like COVID. So uh, I hate that that's the explanation for the long table. <laughs> I was hoping it was just a... The weirdest PR thing ever, but uh, well, it makes sense if that's what his thing yeah. is. An important point, I think, is that steroids and corticosteroids are used for a variety of illnesses, including cancer. And also very importantly, they increase a person's aggression. I think they also reduce or weaken immunity for sure, which could explain, again, another reason why Putin's so afraid of COVID even though he's obviously vaccinated, boosted, reboosted, and even if he'd get COVID, if he is as healthy as he claims, and, you know, he has the best medical care in the world, it still shouldn't be such a huge concern for him. You know, for a man who is in tip-top shape, this fear is peculiar. Now, these elements, clues, the intelligence we talked about, it explains a lot. The long tables, the deep, deep fake videos, the seclusion... Uh, the aggressiveness of the invasion. And by the way, I think it could also explain the West's initial reaction to not go ahead full throttle with the serious sanctions, but opting for a milder approach. Because if Putin is ill on medications that mess with his mental state and increase aggressiveness, he might have escalated three times over. That could be something to take into consideration as well. And if the reports about him having cancer are real, that makes for an even more volatile situation because if Putin is terminally ill, he has nothing to lose. A man with nothing to lose and with the nuclear button at his disposal is a very scary prospect. 
it would explain uh, NATO and the European Union's velvet glove approach because it's clear the US has good intelligence coming from inside the Kremlin and they might know about these things for sure. Now, my approach to how the West initially handled this was take off the damn velvet gloves. In light of recent improvements in how we're helping the Ukrainians, which we discussed in our last episode, and in light of these bits of info about Putin's health, I think this was handled okay. I still want NATO and the EU and the Biden administration to move faster and give more military aid to Ukraine. But if these rumors and if these reports are true, then we do need to be careful. Well, I'm not going to give Western politicians any more credit. Uh, you're going to be more gracious than me. I think everything they see is a mirror and they only think of themselves. And I think their default reaction to anything is I'm going to do some tweets and get my picture taken and we're going to see what everybody else does first. Even if they didn't know something was wrong with him, all of this going so badly for him in such a short period of time in terms of the Ukraine invasion I mean, surely he thought when he started, he would be comfortably in charge of Kiev by now. And the fact that he can't even get there, um, you know, weeks later, whatever problems he had, they've surely been compounded by his, you know, complete mismanagement of this entire invasion and how it's turned against him so quickly. So uh, that's probably making it worse. Yes, and I was going to bring up uh, those Polish MiGs uh, that we refused to give to the Ukrainians. You explained that uh, in the last episode, but in the meantime, I have a new question. You know me, I always have some questions. Why can't we give them new jets, not the old MiGs from the Polish? If the old MiGs are sitting ducks for the jets the Russians have, why not give them new planes that are even better than what the Russians have? Because what's happening in Mariupol and all the cities where maternities and children are bombed could be avoided, I think, if the Ukrainians also had some really good planes in the sky. And I saw on CNN yesterday an Ukrainian fighter jet pilot whose call sign is Juice. He was named Juice by American pilots with whom he participated in joint military exercises. So obviously the Ukrainians are trained to use not only Russian-made planes, but also American fighter jets, or at least some of them are. Why can't we give them the jets? The runways in Ukraine are still functional, at least some of them. Uh, the argument that the Russians have destroyed them doesn't stand. The pilots said they've been uh, trying to protect them, especially to ensure that their old planes can take off, and in the hopes of that if new planes arrive, they still can have runways to take off from. So they're holding on by a thread, hoping someone will give them planes. And in the meantime, the Russians are very close to establishing air superiority, which is bad. Because after that, it's kind of ending. They're going to establish air supremacy, and then it's really... Well, the Russians... So, done. Okay, so there's several things. One, the Russians have air superiority. They already. There's no, there's no question. Um, it's a from yeah. yeah it's a question from what I understand. They're saying they don't, but if they do, then that's bad, isn't it? Well, they do. That's let's be honest. They're sitting on quite a bit of their air force and not even using it, so they have it already, and that's uh, that's not going to change. I don't think. Uh, secondly, there's a lot of uh, particulars that still make that whole idea of giving fighter jets to the Ukraine very sketchy. Number one, it's a question of how many of these Ukrainian fighter pilots actually have time in an F-16. You can't just take a MiG-29 guy and throw him in an F-16 and say, okay, go fly that. Everything in it is different. 
every new thing you fly has its own training regimen and you literally get a separate license approval for each make and model airplane you fly. So there's that. Yeah, but I would think that in this context, documents and formalities wouldn't matter that much. And obviously there are some Ukrainian pilots who are already trained to fly American jets. That's not obvious from his statement. When they do a joint training exercise like that, what they mean is that the Ukrainian pilots flew over in their MiGs and or the American pilots flew over in their F-18s and uh, F-22s and whatever they were flying at the time. And they had like play fights against each other. It doesn't mean that they flew each other's airplanes. They would not do that. That's... That is dangerous. Mm, I understand. So you don't just, like I said, you don't just get in an F-16 or an F-18 and just take off. Um, it's it's not trivial. Another thing okay, to consider okay. in all this, we mentioned a couple of philosophy differences between uh, Russia and uh, America in terms of fighter jets in the past episode. Uh, another one is the Russians have always favored very practical, rugged designs. Uh, They put thick, heavy landing gear on fighter jets with big, fat tires so that you can, if you, in a pinch, you can land one on a highway. You can land one even on a dirt road. And they make them capable of taking off and landing in short distances because that's another consideration. It's all very, you know, like I said, very practical designs. America does not believe in the same things. We have an airport on every other street corner in a lot of states in the U.S., and we bring the airport with us. We have aircraft carriers that we bring the airport with us wherever we go. So America does not spend the weight penalty on putting heavy-duty off-road landing gear on a fighter jet because it's just not a concern. There was a story in the Times in the last couple of days that I was checking up on all this stuff. And the Ukrainians did mention that there's some runways that have been kind of partially damaged, but there's still enough length that they can still use them to just avoid the holes. So it's a question of length. Is there enough distance for an American fighter jet to take off and land? May not be. There's also the fact that the vast majority of this stuff is going on at night, not in the daytime. The Russians are flying all their missions at night. So if you're going to fly at night, then you need some extra proficiency with the instrumentation. You know, if they were okay because they had a few hours in a joint exercise, they had flown an F-16 in the daytime, doing the same thing at night by instruments is a whole nother matter. And, there's it's fraught with peril on so many different uh, possible failures. So I still think it was a bad idea. The, the time story says that the Ukrainians claim at this point, they've shot down 97 Russian airplanes. That's roughly double the number they were claiming a week ago. Uh, they're also saying that Russia's, like I said, flying 200 missions a night, roughly. Ukraine is flying 5 to 10 and running out of airplanes. Uh, They said that Ukraine is down to 55 fighter jets, and that number is going to dwindle because a MiG-29 is not famous for reliability. That's why Poland jumped up and volunteered to give them away. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, 
but basically Poland uh, offered to give their old Russian MiGs to the Ukrainians only if the U.S. would replenish their fleet with new American jets. With newer F-16s. It was going to be a trade-up for them. And that, yeah, F-16 is in every way a better deal long-term for Poland. But that's the tricky part of all this, I suppose, is it's not going well for Putin, as we keep saying, but in terms of air resources, Ukraine's going to run out. That stuff is still out there. You're still going to have to do something. Well, I don't know what it is. Well, that's my point, because I do understand the explanation, and it's valid. What I still feel, though, based on the fact that they have been repeatedly asking for place, Zelensky said, if you can't impose a no-fly zone, which would be, you know, the, the first best thing, at least give me the planes. And I don't think anybody knows better than the Ukrainians what the Ukrainians need. And I don't think they are just asking for planes if they wouldn't know how to use them. I mean, I understand there is a lot of technical stuff behind it, but still my opinion kind of like remains a little bit in the sense of I I still think they wouldn't be asking for things they don't know how to use. There's also been some speculation that the Russians may be running out of missiles and that could be, I mean, that could be the wild card in this whole air superiority thing. Um, it's mentioned in the Times article that I quoted a minute ago that a pretty common outcome to these engagements between Ukrainian uh, MiG-29s and the more modern uh, Russian fighters is that, as we mentioned in our last episode, the Russians can shoot from a further distance because they've got better missiles. So that's a given. So a Ukrainian pilot being interviewed said that it starts out with him trying to get close enough to a Russian airplane to shoot at it and somebody on the ground telling him as he shoots that the Russian already shot, you know, and so he's got to immediately turn away and run away and try to run the missile that the Russian shot at him out of gas, which is doable. And so that could be the explanation for how this has gone that I didn't think about is it could be a lot of out of gas missiles falling on the ground um, and not either side hitting each other at all. Um, And in that case, uh, that's another consideration in giving the Ukrainians an airplane. You know, the airplane is only one half of shooting down a Russian counterpart. The other half is, what are you going to shoot him with? And uh, they got to have that to go with it, which is another layer of complexity. Speaking of health and flying things, we talked about this a little bit in our episode about Theodore Wright, the insurance fraud phone case influencer guy. Yeah, that's a, that's a premium episode exclusively available for our subscribers. It's kind of crazy. He had one of those Russian fighter jets, and it's pretty common that people in the U.S., for not a lot of money, just because of the currency exchange rates, you can go get an old Soviet-era fighter jet and fly it around in the U.S. Uh, and pretend to be a fighter jet pilot. And it's a pretty common occurrence with older guys that go and buy those Soviet fighter jets that they go to land, and landing a fighter jet is different. It's not trivial. It doesn't just slow down like a civilian airplane does. You've got to 
you've got to put yourself through some pretty significant G-forces to slow it down so that it can land. And these guys will turn a little bit too hard and cause themselves to pass out and just, <laughs> just nosedive it in the ground. Like a lawn dart happens all the time. So Putin especially doesn't need to be flying anything, much less his <laughs> glider with a lawnmower stuck to it. Now, back to Putin's health. If he is indeed terminally ill or even seriously ill, this might explain the accelerated timeline of the invasion of Ukraine. In his quest to rebuild the USSR by taking back what he considers to be lost Russian territory, Putin had previously opted for a long-term approach. For example, in 2008, he invaded Georgia in support of the self-proclaimed republics of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And then six years later, he annexed Crimea, so just a little piece of Ukraine. So he never went full throttle ahead with a full-scale invasion like now. Now, this is important. Under changes to the Russian constitution made in early 2021, Putin could remain in power until 2036. About that, a small digression if I may. As a person who was born and grew up in a former USSR satellite country, but is now an American citizen, I have a message for the American people. Uh, you need to be careful. On January 6, 2021, when all the MAGA people stormed the Capitol and beat up policemen and wanted to hang my Mike Pence, the vice president at the time, and kill other politicians inside the building, we were super close to a dictatorship kind of situation in that moment. And the point is, and I hear this all the time, oh, it can't happen here. We have a constitution. My answer always is, so did Italy before Mussolini, so did Germany before Hitler, and so did Russia before Putin, so did Romania before Ceausescu. The list is very long. Constitutions can be amended. Ours was many, many times. Remember prohibition? We put that in the constitution. And when we realized we like our booze too much, to give it up, we took it out again. So be careful because if the constitution can be changed to accommodate alcohol consumption and alcohol preferences, imagine what it can be made to accommodate in the wrong hands. Because the Kremlin's reach is long and disinformation almost spelled disaster for us. And we're not out of the woods yet, not by far. Now, there's a good dystopian novel. Hopefully it doesn't turn into a written documentary. Because for a hot minute it seemed like it did. It's called It Can't Happen Here and it's written by Sinclair Lewis. I don't think people appreciate how drunk people were in America in the late 19th century and not in beer. We're talking about hard liquor. So I don't know that the prohibition people were completely off base when they came up with that idea because the average American in the late 19th century was just sloppy drunk. And these were the people that considered duels to still be a reasonable way to settle an argument. So maybe they had a point at the time, but... Uh, Anyways. Yeah, we should do an episode about that, by the way. Also, like I understand my point wasn't that uh, putting the prohibition in the Constitution was a bad or a good decision. That was, that was not the point. I was just trying to say that constitutions are not made in stone. And for some reason, a lot of Americans do not understand that the Constitution is an ever-changing document and it's being amended to get along with the times, or at least it should be in some respects. But, yeah. I think in all these cases, it's not... Uh, it's not easy to boil down these political events. It's not just one thing happening and all this terrible. There's a reason 
why enough people can be organized together to start a revolution in a place like France back in the 18th century or in uh, Vietnam in the 1950s or in Cuba in the 1950s or any of these other places. There's or the Soviets in the early 20th century. There's always there's an underlying reason that you can get enough people in a mob together to go do something. But I wouldn't I wouldn't compare revolutions to what happened on January 6th. I'm sorry. That was not a revolution. That was not fighting for freedom. The irony is they thought well, they were. That's what I was going to say. They thought they reality, were. It's ridiculous yeah. to watch it and think that, that people, there's like people from around where I live, like there were stories about realtors taking private jets to go to the insurrection. <laughs> that's like, are you kidding me? So- to me, yes, this is absolutely ridiculous. But to them, they thought it was real. So, yeah, this is Putin's whole PR thing again. It only matters mm-hmm. to the people it matters to. And if that's your target audience, then go for it. Yeah, just put we, out the fake bear. need to be careful is all I'm saying. And I think there are ways. And I think we've been doing a little bit better of controlling this, but it's still really, really dangerous. Now, back to Putin. So... Based on this constitution change he did in Russia, he has many years ahead, right, until his presidential mandate would be over. So there is more than enough time for him to do incremental land grabs for these countries he wants to invade, right? Like, for, Which these incremental land grabs, the West would see as, you know, minor incursions, punishable with the usual slap on the wrist, like we did in Crimea. Big mistake, by the way how we handled that. Now, this is why many geopolitics experts, pundits, people expected him to adopt the salami tactics, taking Ukraine piece by piece or slice by slice over a period of time. And this is why the way he invaded and the way he went ahead full throttle is really shocking because it's not really what he has done so far. Now, why would he take such a risk on trying to capture the whole of Ukraine, a country of 44 million people in one go. It seems very plausible when you put all of these things that we discussed today, and when you put them together, the health issues, what he has been... Exactly. If he's going to die in six months, this is him going out with a bang. Exactly. Like this timeline of the Ukraine invasion is extremely accelerated. And when you put every little piece in context, it does seem that he might be really having serious medical issues and he wants to leave a legacy and, you know, the legacy of a great leader who restored the USSR or part of it. And he's this powerful, mythical image that will be forever praised by the Russians. Now, I would like to recommend a very good book to our listeners. It's called Winter is Coming. It is written by Gary Kasparov. And no, it's not a Game of Thrones book. Gary Kasparov was the world's number one ranked chess player for 20 years. In 2005, he retired to help lead the pro-democracy opposition against Putin. And he is now a human rights activist and author and also one of Putin's most vocal critics. And he was so right about Putin. He saw it all coming. This book, Winter is Coming, written in 2007, reads as if it was written now. It is extremely current, but it also describes Russia's backslide into a dictatorship and how Putin came to be. And it focuses on why the West should have pursued a more assertive foreign policy in regards to Putin. So Winter is Coming, a really good read, visionary stuff, really. Yeah, if anything jumps out, at me, uh, in regard to Putin and his 
contrast versus the previous Soviet leaders. I do think, as I mentioned before in this episode, that he is a true believer in you know, the way that the Soviet Union operated at the time that he got into the KGB. But I think in his case, he was the first Russian premier that understood at a deep level the integration between finance and geopolitics and defense issues and territory. He managed to put all the pieces together that the Soviet premiers did not. The Soviet Union was a very insular society. Uh, and Putin, by contrast, was not. And a lot of this is going to come up again in our episode about him and you know his early days as the Russian president and his time in the Stasi. Uh, he is fundamentally different from how they were, and he came up through a kind of through a corporate Western style lens as far as how to assert control and how to gain power that no Soviet premier would have had any experience with. So he is fundamentally different from all of them. And um, I don't know if that's part of what is motivating all this, but if nothing else, he is unique. Uh, he has to be given that. He is, at the same time, trying to reassert Soviet authority. He is not a Soviet premier at all. So yes. He is his own man. Fake bear and <laughs> fake hand and all. Yes. Um, and I think uh, the conclusion for the part about his health issues is that if he is indeed dying, as all these pieces might seem to suggest, or even if he's really very ill, you know, and he thinks he doesn't have enough time because legally he has enough time in his presidency to do things in a different way, as per his track record so far. So... This aggression right now, the accelerated timeline, all the little hints and intelligence we got about his health point in one direction. And I think it would explain a lot of what's been happening and also a lot of why the West has been trying to handle this with velvet gloves, like we said earlier. But either way, if this is true, because we do not know, he might live another 50 years, who knows. But if this is true, this is indeed a very sensitive and really volatile situation. And I suppose the last thing to discuss in all of this is if this is the end of the road for Putin, mm -hmm. who's next? And I don't know. Um, I don't think anybody knows because the most obvious people also suffer because of this failed invasion to this point of Ukraine. So it seemed like the closest person to Putin and uh, in terms of public appearances and you see them putting out PR of himself and this other guy both fishing shirtless <laughs> in the I summertime. I mean, so yes, the defense <laughs> minister. So there's PR stuff with him and the defense minister, Sergei Shogu, fishing together, and neither of them has his shirt on. I mean, I'm not going to speculate on all that, but surely the defense minister is going to be blamed for the failed Ukraine invasion. So it's not him anymore. He was a good hypothetical because he's from an eastern province that borders China. 
So he's not really a born and bred Moscow political insider and all these things. Uh, he did a good job as mm-hmm. the minister of kind of lesser non-political bureaus before he was the defense minister. So he was the most likely choice in terms of what everybody in the Western world was looking at six months ago, but he's going to get blamed for the invasion. So it's not him anymore. All these other guys, you know, you go down the yeah. list, there's a lot of deputy ministers or even mayors or they have construction corporations that are sort of technocratish like uh, Sergei Sobyanin, he's the mayor of Moscow and... Yeah, Dmitry Kozak was supposed to take over Ukraine after they got done invading it. It's not him because it doesn't look like they're going to get done invading Ukraine. They're going to have to retreat. I can only hope so. Yeah, so it's not him. There's a culture minister, Vladimir Medinsky, that uh, seems like he's got a very KGB way about him. Uh, maybe he's the most likely. Then some of these other guys that are lower on this list are you know, like deputy ministers and they're younger, like a couple of them are not even as old as me. So not likely them. They haven't been mm-hmm. around long enough to build the political consensus. So if you look at this list today versus everything that's happened in the past couple of months and say, okay, well, who's the most likely guy today? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. It's not clear. Yeah. So, and I don't even think, I'm not even sure that Putin gets to pick who the next guy is if they lose Ukraine. Yes, that's a very good point. And actually, if I may just jump in for a second. So I think there are three scenarios that are possible here for Putin to not be in power anymore. First would be that he steps down due to medical reasons. I don't think it will ever happen. Not likely at all, based on what we know about Putin. Now, second scenario would be a revolution. The Russian people could bring him down. That would be, I think, feasible if the stars align, so to speak. Or he dies either because he's ill or We know he's afraid of being assassinated. There's intelligence on that. We discussed that in our last episode. So that could happen too. Now, what I've read about one person in particular that seems to be very important to him and very close to him, there's this guy called Yuri Kovalchuk, and he's an oligarch, and he's a longtime crony of Putin. And he is also the owner of the National Media Group. So he has a grip on all the news that Russian people see and hear. And he owns stakes in Channel One. That is a former TV station owned by Boris Berezovsky, whom Putin murdered. We discussed that in that in our previous episode as well. And he also has a bunch of other TV channels. He's involved in oil, everything. So he's a very rich oligarch and apparently a very good friend of Putin, like a close person to him. Now, the question is, does Putin really trust anybody? See, that's what I was going to say. This is the problem that that uh, that Putin's mm-hmm. legacy has is so the thing that I would like people to understand about this whole part, I suppose, is the prime minister in Russia is not like the prime minister in the UK. The prime minister is somebody Putin appoints to take the blame mm-hmm. for what goes wrong. That's ex- that's it. So. You know, years ago, people thought that this, uh, that years ago, people thought Dmitry Medvedev, 
who was appointed prime minister, they were like, oh, okay, that's the next guy. Well, no. Dmitry Medvedev was very popular when he was appointed prime minister by Putin and then not popular about a year later because that's it. He was appointed to take the blame for everything that went wrong. Yeah, and not only that, he filled in, he kept Putin's seat warm because at some point the Russian constitution didn't allow Putin to be president for, I don't know, fifth or fourth or whatever term. So Medvedev stepped in and he was president for a brief amount of time until Putin could come back. But he was Putin's puppet there, you know, he wasn't really, yeah. Exactly, yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. what I was getting at. It's the whole point. Yeah, the whole point is to appoint a guy, let him take the blame for what you didn't get right, and then you can come back and say, okay, well, I guess I got to come back because Medvedev screwed it up. So when that's how you govern and you take everybody with some semblance of popularity and you put them in an unpopular spot just to suppress their political trajectory, Mm -hmm. then at the end of your time, if you're somebody like Vladimir Putin, there's only two ways you can wind up. You can either wind up the hero who got everything he wanted, or there's going to be complete chaos as soon as your blood stops pumping, one or the other. Yes, I agree. And you know, the defense minister you were talking about, I think, in fact, I think you were so spot on. I think actually he got fired. And I think Putin said something really demeaning. Uh, something to the effect that the minister was like a pair of old slippers, like he was always there and ready to be used, and then he discarded them. So that's you can't build trust. People will not like you if you treat them like that. So the question is now, I think the symbolic noose is tightening around and Putin is getting more isolated because there are not enough people around that he can trust anymore. I don't know if he ever really trusted anybody. I mean, this Kovalchuk guy and Putin, apparently, according to reports, are very tight and they both own homes in the same exclusive dacha cooperative and Kovalchuk hosted the wedding of Putin's daughter in 2013. And Kovalchuk has established himself as the de facto second man in Russia, the most influential among the president's entourage. But I think Putin keeps him close. I don't think he trusts him. And I think Kovalchuk also has his own interests, which is probably to grab power as soon as Putin is weakened or, you know, something happens to him. Yeah. Well, the Moscow Times is still fighting the good fight. I I read a Moscow (laughs) Times story today, and they were talking about how Putin definitely cannot run for re-election because of the changes to the Russian uh, constitution in 2024. So they're already throwing it out there that, Mm -hmm. okay, this is... They were illegal, and they... Yeah, the the, the changes were not... Yeah. And they, of course, they, of course, they mixed in that, yes, it had nothing to do with Putin, the fact that he's still president now. It was, they got the, the first female astronaut, or first female cosmonaut, rather, to introduce the legislation that allowed Putin to stay president for so long. And they got her to say that it was because of uh, popular demand that she had no choice but to introduce this, uh, <laughs> This change to the Russian laws to allow Putin to be president as many times as he wanted to be, that the people demanded it, and she could not say no, and that definitely he could not be president again in 2024. So they're already floating the idea that, uh, 
Oh, well, he wasn't going to come back anyway. Yeah, they're trying so, to reverse. Yeah, they're fault. trying to set the stage probably for what's coming next because they kind of feel maybe that he's close to. I don't know. I hope we are right. Uh, I hope he will not be president in 2024 anymore. I don't want anybody to be hurt or to die. I just want somebody else in power. I want a democracy there. And what I want is for the Ukraine war to end. And I have one more bit of intelligence. There's an article in Pravda, Ukraine, that was written on March 20, so a few days back. And it says that a group of very influential people who oppose Putin and who plan to assassinate him, according to this article, is starting to form among the Russian business and political elite. And this comes from the chief directorate of intelligence of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, which also still has some close ties to the FSB, former KGB. I mean... I think there are people in the FSB, in the former KGB, that do not like what Putin is doing. They do not like how the economy is being destroyed. And they don't like their money being messed up by the sanctions and all that stuff. So the goal of this group that is apparently forming is to remove Putin from power, obviously, as soon as possible, and to restore the economic ties with the West. Now, a part of Russia's political elite sees this Federal Security Service director named Alexander Bortinikov as Putin's successor. And this Bortinikov is the guy who recently fallen out of favor with Putin. Apparently, the reason for his downfall is the way he miscalculated the war against Ukraine. So Bortinikov now is in a very difficult spot. But still, the people close to him in the FSB and close to Putin are blaming Putin because at the end of the day, let's be honest, Bortinikov only did what Putin instructed him to do. He's just a scapegoat right now. But it seems like he's also could be one of the ones favored to take power from Putin. Yeah. And so, and even as I hear all that and what I think of it has been completely changed (laughs) after reading Putin's Stasi files. It's like, that's what they would do. It's uh, It makes sense because, as I said a minute ago, Putin is not, uh, he's not Khrushchev or Gorbachev or, or Stalin. Uh, he is a more modern version of that. He understands uh, the sort of corporate and finance world more than those guys did because those guys were still trying to maintain a socialist revolutionary country. Putin is not. So he understands things that they don't economically. It's not to say he's done a good job of maintaining the Russian economy in his tenure, but he does understand those things. And the fact that we're talking about how it may be some outsider who's not some deputy minister, uh, and it may be a corporate guy, uh, makes sense. That's, that's, that's the Putin way that is different from the Gorbachev way or the Khrushchev way. So that may be the case. And, and that guy may not be an outsider. He may not be the outsider that people presume him to be just because he's not a deputy minister. I think people in the West are prone to forget that, no, really, the Soviet party is really gone. It doesn't have to be a deputy minister. It doesn't have to be a Politburo board member that's the next in that line. Was... It could be a corporate guy. So Exactly. And that still, is and still yeah, be that in is Putin's also pocket. that's a very good point. We do not know how Putin will be uh 
how Putin will go out of power, but we don't know what's coming after him and if that person is still going to be in his shadow. I don't know. I don't think, given the context now, I don't think a lot of the people there in his circle are very happy with what he's doing because, let's face it, it all ends when the money is affected. And right now, with all the sanctions and everything, I'm not saying they're going to suffer too much. They're all filthy rich and their money is well hidden. But I think there are issues that they are not agreeing with because, look, the FSB, the former KGB, is actually giving intelligence to the Ukrainians. And uh, that's not a small thing. And my question would be, when Putin is gone, who will win, the oligarchs or the FSB, or will they make a pact and stay in power together? If I had to bet, it's probably going to be the FSB. (laughs) I think that is Putin's contribution to the Russian Mm -hmm. world is that he put those things together. The, you know, kind of the corporate finance guys and the ministers and the intelligence services. He combined them all together into one uh, common purpose. So... I don't think we know whether there is going to be infighting between them um, yet. I don't think it's possible to know, but I won't be surprised either way. I won't be surprised if there's tanks in the streets in Moscow uh, because they never made it to the streets of Kiev. I I wouldn't be surprised at that either. Mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting to watch what's going to happen. Yes, for sure. That's what happened last time. The tanks turned around from Afghanistan and went to Moscow. And there were t- the same tanks were on the streets in Moscow. So I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing happened again. I mean, it could. Who knows? Before you go, one more thing. Ratings and reviews are important for every podcast, but especially for shows like this. Dubious is produced by just us, two first-time podcasters, uh, using the code Neil wrote himself. That's actually what the rentfree.media logo you see on our cover graphics is. We rely on our listener support. So if you like our content, please subscribe on dubiouspod.com. At the $5 level, you will get two full bonus episodes a month, one every other Monday, in addition to our free episodes dropping every Thursday. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also help us out by rating the show five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. On social media, we are at dubiouspod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for listening.